funders and foundations and people in power, they do not get moved by just like general feedback. So actually calling them out by name has been very effective. I highly recommend that those of us who have more privilege in the sector start to do that more often. Welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a strategy consultancy focused on social and environmental change. In the fourth season of our podcast, we'll be changing things up a bit. We know it's not just what donors want that's important, and that sometimes over-focusing on this can be a problem in the nonprofit sector. So, in this season, we'll be exploring what we all want by speaking with movers and shakers to delve into the state of our beautiful, yet in many ways broken, sector. To collectively imagine solutions to the things that keep us up at night and inspire more progressive practices and ways of collaborating. This podcast is part of our mission to fix the flow of resources for good. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel, the host of the show, and this officially marks our start to season four. I have to say, we are starting off with a bang. We had the pleasure and delight of speaking with Vu Lei, founder of the prolific platform Nonprofit AF. I'm joined here by IG's CEO, Emily Collins Ellis. Hey, Emily, who's going to tell you a little bit more about him? Thanks, Rachel. And hi, everyone. Great to be back. So, Vu Lei is the creator and the genius behind the platform Nonprofit AF, where he shares his insights, criticisms, and thoughts about the nonprofit sector. If you're not already following this account, you really should. It's brilliant, it's hilarious, and it's the perfect amount of irreverence that this sector needs. Through the platform, you'll find things like Vu's hashtag crappy funding practices campaign, where fundraisers share their donor horror stories with Vu, and he uses his platform to call these donors out directly. His hashtag nonprofit ASMR videos that will make you absolutely lol, and his brilliant and insightful thought leadership on the deep and important topics we all need to reckon with. He's also part of the leadership team for the community-centric fundraising movement, which we'll dive into in more detail, and has experience as a former executive director of the nonprofit Rainer Valley Corps. Oh, and he's also a Pisces, a vegan, and a defender of the Oxford comma, which I really agree with. <laughs> Before we dive in, I, of course, want to send a thank you and a shout out to our official season four sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. And I also want to send a thank you to our fantastic media partner, Alliance Magazine. Check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, for lots of very interesting philanthropic content. And you can get a 50% discount on a subscription by using the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. Okay. Now on to the interview. We hope you enjoy it. Vu, welcome to What Donors Want. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So for listeners who may not know you yet, and if you are a listener who doesn't know Vu, I absolutely recommend you change that as soon as possible. I thought that it would be fun if we started by reading one of your tweets. And this is the tweet that is pinned to the top of your profile. So it's it's quite an obvious one for people who visit your page. But it's pretty fantastic. And I think it really illustrates who you are and what you're about in this sector. So it's framed as a conversation between a conference planner and you. So I'm going to do my very best to read this out loud and do a dramatic reinterpretation. <clears throat> the conference planner says... Hi, Vu. We wanted to explore booking you to do a workshop on, you interrupt and say, burn it all down and let better systems rise from the ashes, unshackled from the bindings of the past. Conference planner, uh, a workshop on self-care. Vu, that is my workshop on self-care. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I did Thank that. Thank you very much, Rachel. That was excellent. <laughs> No Thank pressure. You. But yeah. I think I speak for everyone at IG and certainly for myself when I say that we are massive fans of your work. We've been following your work for a very long time and it is deeply inspirational and the exact dose of irreverence that we all need to keep the momentum up to do this kind of work. You and of course your profile at Nonprofit AF, which everyone has to follow after this episode. So... Before we dive into the deep end of this interview, we're so excited to talk to you. Could you just wind it back a little bit, especially for listeners who might not know your work yet? Why did you create Nonprofit AF and what is it all about? 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I'm Vu, I use he, him pronouns, and I am calling in from Seattle, Washington, which is on Duwamish and Coast Salish land. I'm a mid-aged Asian man for readers, just a picture, just a tired, short-haired Asian man <laughs> right here. Um, uh, Nonprofit AF started because a funder was asking me to write for their website. And I said, oh, shit, a funder wanted me to do something. I can't really say no. So then I started writing for them. But then I realized, you know, there's there's so much humor in our sector and there's so many brilliant people. And at the same time, I think that we kind of suppress ourselves. We've been trained to say things a certain way, to write grants a certain way, to be very academic. And I just needed to kind of, you know, get us out of that kind of thought. Can I inject a little humor and truth telling into our, into our work a little bit? So that's how Nonprofit AF got started 10 years ago. And one of our favorite campaigns that you've started is your hashtag crappy funding practices, which is exactly to your point, an opportunity to really be less deferential to funders and really call out some of these harms and challenges in the sector, but also in a solidarity and a hilarious way. Mm -hmm. So you launched that on Twitter in 2020 as a way to publicly call out funders who have ridiculous requests for us as fundraisers and then fundraisers send you screenshots of these requests and you use your platform to call them out so i've got an example here from zoe matties which is hashtag crappy funding practices when you spend all day working on a grant report only to find out after you try and submit it that they only allow 1000 characters per answer so you have to go back and revise every single answer angry face emoji. <laughs> so you've written that the preference of the privilege to not be publicly embarrassed should not outweigh the urgency of our work addressing the pain inflicted on marginalized communities. Mm. I love that one so much. Yeah. Well, I think that we've been very nice as a sector. We attract really nice, brilliant people into the sector who are very dedicated. Mm -hmm. And because the need is so great that we always need to do work then it's really hard for us to actually stop and advocate for ourselves. And in 2020, colleagues were emailing me and saying, look at this funder who asked us to print out grant application proposals and deliver them to their office during a pandemic. Mm. And so I think it moved beyond annoyance into actually jeopardizing people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I had to kind of weigh, like, do I just call this out like generally or do I just actually call out this foundation by name? And what I realized is that funders and foundations and people in power is that they do not really get moved by just like general feedback. They're just like, oh, either they dismiss it, they don't think that it really applies to them, or there's really nothing that is at risk for them, right? If they're not being called out by name. So actually calling them out by name has been very effective. And they're like, oh shit, someone's actually noticing the shitty things that I'm doing <laughs> um, and I'm, we're being called out. And that has actually been very effective. And I highly recommend that those of us who have more privilege in the sector start to do that more often. I mean, like, don't be mean about it. Don't be like an asshole, you mm -hmm. know? But like, if funders are doing terrible things, call them out on it. 100%. You've touched on something that is so fascinating to me. And, you know, because we're also in the business of changing hearts and minds in the sector. So we work in the sector, we serve it, we love it. It's beautiful and it's broken. And so we're always constantly trying to think about how we can actually create the change we want to see at scale in a sustainable embodied way, not in a performative action tokenistic way. And something that we think a lot about is the concept of tipping points. I think about this in the context of Malcolm Gladwell's book, which is amazing. And he writes the idea of a tipping point, how he defines it, is that magic moment when an idea, trend, or social behavior crosses a threshold, tips and spreads like wildfire. So I'm always thinking about that when thinking about change at scale. What is the tipping point of change in this nonprofit philanthropic sector? And something we speak a lot about, and to your point that you just made, is that public shaming is a really, really useful tool for this kind of change at scale. Because I would say that we're at a point, more or less, where as a sector, if you do something particularly progressive, or some people don't like that word, forward-thinking, equitable, correct, common sense, you can be publicly celebrated for that practice, you know, being a participatory grant maker, for instance. But if you do something that would be considered traditional, which we actually know to mean, in many cases, harmful, restricted giving, the kind of bad behavior, crappy behavior that you're calling out in this campaign, so many people view that as neutral, not harmful. And so we need to tip the scale so that it's 
positive and harmful, not positive and neutral. And when it comes to the world of philanthropy, where so much of this is wrapped up in power and identity, I'm not sure there's a way forward that doesn't involve public shaming. I think that's what's so brilliant about what you do, but so many people are so reticent to do that. It's quite a tipping point, I see, what you've been able to create there, which is really, really inspiring for us. Yeah, well, thank you, Rachel. I I appreciate that. I don't want us to get distracted, though, because the crappy funding practices, that's one thing. I think we should absolutely be calling out foundations that are doing harmful things. Yeah. We should also be enacting legislation. In the United Mm -hmm. States, there's like more legislation being discussed, like the ACE Charitable Act, which is trying to get donor advice funds to actually have a timeline where they have to give out money. They can't just squirrel money away in perpetuity and just never have to give out any money at all. So public shaming is one thing. The legislation needs to be another thing that we need to start working on. But I'm also, I don't want us to get too distracted by like these minor incremental changes either. Some of these things should be very basic minimum, like unrestricted funding. That should just be the minimum at this point, right? And any funder who's still restricting funding, I call them like the anti-vaxxers and the flat earthers of the nonprofit (laughs) and philanthropy, right? Sector, right? At this point, if you're still giving restricted funding, you're basically an anti-vaxxer in philanthropy. But that's and most funders. we don't have time for your shit anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I love, I love yeah. that framing. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's so many of the funders. And I, I truly don't think so many donors view that as harmful or as an anti-vax behavior. It's, mm-hmm. it's considered neutral in so many circles, which is deeply well, frustrating. Which is yeah, well, we... let's talk about this, Rachel. I mean, you said that the system is broken. It is not broken. It is designed exactly how it's supposed to work, which is to mm. protect wealthy white families and ensure that their wealth and power still remain in their hands. So mm-hmm. philanthropy was, is designed for that, mm-hmm. right? And it's doing it very effectively, right? And I think in some ways, we have not realized as do-gooders, as nonprofit professionals, that in some ways we have been sort of conscience laundering for the inequities that are out there. You know, like I've been getting into a lot of trouble these past few days, or these past few years, I guess, because I've been trying to really talk about like the how we've been doing fundraising has been really ineffective and terrible in many ways, right? We have been trained to center rich, mostly white donors and their feelings, right? And ensure that they feel like heroes, ensure that they feel the sense of gratitude from us. Well, what does that do in the long run? It excuses them from thinking about the sort of systemic inequities that they are upholding. You know, like instead of them giving away $5,000 and then we write them a handwritten thank you note like we've been trained to do, maybe they should be paying like $50,000 more in taxes, Mm. right? So we cannot be distracted by these like very simple incremental things because I think in some ways that's what a lot of the status quo folks want. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think of ourselves as fundraisers as being part of the funding system. And obviously, we're playing sometimes a transactional, sometimes a relationship-based role within that, but that fundamentally, the behaviors that we have been taught, the behaviors that we perpetuate are based on the economic and unjust systems that we're operating in, right? So we we mirror, well, we mirror what we've been taught. We mirror what appears to be expected of us from our donors. We mirror the kind of capitalist market based systems that we're working in too. And I love the blog that you wrote also about the learned helplessness of NGOs and the kind of learned helplessness concept. Do you think that that's part of what enables these hashtag crappy funding practices? And with that in mind, recognizing the power dynamics that are at play, how much of the burden to fix all of this do you feel is on nonprofits and fundraisers versus you know funders and, and the people who have the capital? The burden needs to weigh mostly on the people who are in power and who have like the wealth and the funders really need to do this. But I think that in some ways, we also have a responsibility because we enable this. We allow terrible things to happen because we put up with it. Yeah. And I understand that because of the power dynamics, because our communities really need us to be there, then oftentimes it's hard. But I've been seeing more and more people, even when funders are like, actually, we want to give you unrestricted funding. They're like, well, actually, can you restrict this grant that you're giving us instead? Mm-hmm. Like, how is that even a thing? <laughs> like, how, you know, I, I feel like we don't we don't notice just how much of an impact unconsciously many of these like terrible practices have been on us. And it's not just like fixing. Like, I get so many questions or I read articles like this is how we need we need to streamline grant applications 
I don't think we should be streamlining grant applications. I think we should be eliminating them altogether, like altogether. And we're so used to this idea of grants as a way to allocate funding that we don't think about how this is actually really messed up. I mean, imagine if there's a food pantry and it goes to hungry families and it's like, hey, hungry families, we know that you're really hungry, but we, have, we only have so much food for so many of you. So to make it fair and objective, we're going to ask each of you hungry families to write an essay about how hungry you and your families are. And then we're going to grade you from zero to 100. And then we're going to, to be objective and we'll give the families that wrote the best essays about how hungry they are. Like that doesn't make any sense, especially we're talking about equity and restoring balance and talking about we're talking about justice and things like that. It should be mm-hmm. responsibility of the food pantry to find the families that are most affected by hunger and ensuring they get the resources, whether or not they can write the best essay about how hungry they are. So this idea that we need to like streamline grant applications, you know, make it easier, like dismisses the real bigger issue at hand, which is that foundation, it should be their responsibility to ensure that the communities that are most affected by systemic injustice are, are getting the resources they need, whether or not they write the best grant application or not. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's a really powerful way to put it. And I really take your point about the system doing exactly what it's designed to do and actually thriving within that original design. And that's quite thought provoking. And I, I think, thank you for saying that. I think that's really fascinating. And something that I love that you kind of mentioned is that you speak a lot about fundraiser fragility as well. You have an amazing blog on that. And and you use all these these really interesting therapeutic frameworks as well to analyze the nonprofit world and the profession of fundraising. And you you write so beautifully about how disappointing so many fundraising behaviors are. And I and I do honestly personally struggle with that point around who is the burden on. Yes, of course, to fundamentally change the way this works, the people in power have to be the ones to change not only their behavior, but their belief system, which is very hard. And as fundraisers, there are elements that are within our control. And sometimes we get in our own way, not to put too much burden on that, but also to call out, I almost see that as empowering because there are elements that we can change because they are directly within our circles of influence and our behavioral control. And I see that as quite exciting, actually. I agree. But I also think that what we need to do if the system is working as designed is build a new system, right? And we can't build a new system or or come up with, have yeah. the space for that kind of vision and building without putting down <laughs> the methods that we've previously been trained yeah. to deploy within the system. And it's, it's the same, we we had a guest on the podcast who said, you know, if you're, if you're trying to solve the problems of capitalism using your consumer power, you've already lost. And I think you could apply that to what we're talking about here. If you're trying to solve the problems of an inequitable philanthropy system with your like marketing and fundraising power in, in the traditional sense, then you'll forever be kind of on a hamster wheel or banging your head against a brick wall or whatever metaphor <laughs> makes sense to you in this context. So I, I think that it's a big challenge, but I do think that fundraisers being accountable for building something new together is quite yeah. powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. I I think that that's something we do need to really talk about, which is like, what are the things that we actually can control? Mm-hmm. You know, like the way that we thank donors, the way that we engage with them. We have not been talking to our donors, for example, about where their wealth came from. And in the mm-hmm. United States, I don't know about the UK, but in the United States, mm-hmm. a lot of wealth came from five things. Slavery, stolen indigenous land, worker exploitation, environmental degradation, and tax avoidance. Mm-hmm. And so going to people whose wealth came from inequitable means and then being trained like, hey, you should like ensure that they feel really grateful and recognize them based on how much they contribute. Like, you know, ensure that the $10,000 donors feel better than the $5,000 donors <laughs> and, and so on. Right. These are yeah. all things that we really need to discuss. But I think that it's going to be really hard to change these things. And I've been noticing a lot of resistance, even like a couple of weeks ago when I got mm-hmm. into a lot of trouble from mostly white allies because I went, I was on a webinar and I said, philanthropy has often been a hobby for the rich and it really shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And a whole bunch of people came out. They called me presumptuous. They called me arrogant. They said, how dare I insult donors, etc." And it was really confusing how such a bland and true statement you know, can trigger so much consternation among among so many fundraisers, white mm-hmm. fundraisers mm-hmm. and white fundraising experts who've been training the people in the sector. And I realize this because I don't think that we can really change the sector unless we acknowledge how complicit we are mm-hmm. in benefiting from inequity. 
our livelihoods depend on the existence of inequity. Yeah. I mean, one person got mad at me because he was just like, you know, some of the stuff Vu says may be valid, but like, it seems like his premise is that we shouldn't even exist. And I'm like, really? You think that's a bad thing for <laughs> us to not exist? Yes, my premise is that we should not exist. We should not exist. If we can solve inequity and injustice and poverty, and then we don't exist and fundraisers have to become wedding singers or whatever, that is a good thing. <laughs> and we're going to be that okay with that. Yeah. Well, on that, why do you think that's so hard for people to hear? I agree that it should be considered quite an obvious statement, but why do you think that the phrase that you've been in trouble for, the philanthropy is often treated as a hobby for the rich, why do you think that is so hard for people to hear? And, and what would you say to someone who has a strong reaction to that statement? I would say that, first of all, I really appreciate the folks in the sector. Right? I criticize our sector quite a lot, all the time. But the reality is that I really love our sector. We do amazing things. So I don't want this to get lost in the shuffle of the criticism that I leverage against the sector, right? Mm -hmm. The reality is that we do have brilliant people who are making the world better every single day, and I appreciate them. At the same time, we can acknowledge that and at the same time recognize that we've also become this sort of white moderate that Dr. King warned about, right? In his letter from a Birmingham jail, he was talking about how the biggest threat towards justice are not the people burning crosses, you know? and wearing hoods or whatever. It's the well-meaning people on the side saying, oh, I really believe in equity and justice, but like, can we be nicer? Can we not make a fuss? Can we not rabble rouse? You know, can we be civil to one another instead? Can we take it slow and be pragmatic? And so on. So he identified that this is because there's way more of those folks than there are like overt racists in the sector. And so what has happened is that over time, a lot of fundraisers who are, again, well-meaning, mostly white folks, are like, oh, we are doing amazing work. Look at us using philanthropy and fundraising to help advance the sector. And after a time, they don't realize they've just spiraled and turned our sector and fundraising, everything into one giant, white, moderate sector of well-meaning people who do not look at the systemic issues that are going on out there. And now that they're being challenged towards it, it causes some sort of existential crisis that I've been seeing more and more of where it's like, oh my gosh, have I been a white moderate this whole time? And instead of actually confronting that and sitting down saying, wow, I need to figure out how I can do better, they start to lash out. And I think that's part of the growing process that they, they're going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like in response to some of the challenges that you just described there, I really love the work that you've been doing with the community-centric fundraising movement. So I'll just describe that for listeners, which mm -hmm. is the fundraising model that's grounded in equity and social justice. The movement prioritizes the entire community over individual organizations, fosters a sense of belonging and interdependence, and presents their work not just as a set of individual transactions, but holistically and encourages mutual support between nonprofits. And I think that's beautiful. And I also think it's so aligned with our ethos here at IG. So to kind of take it forward into a, a kind of what next, the kind of positive steps that can be taken in response to the challenges that you're sharing. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about that movement and maybe a little bit about its origin story as well? Yeah, yeah. CommunityCentricFundraising.org was started a few years ago when a bunch of fundraisers of color and I, we just got together and said, like, the way that we were doing fundraising is actually, is actually really terrible, right? It centers the feelings of white donors, mostly white donors. Mm -hmm. And it perpetuates this hunger game where we're just competing with one another to get as much money for our own organization as possible. Screw everyone else. These are criticisms that have been, you know, have been brought up by lots and lots of people over the decades. But I think it's it reached a tipping point, like you said, Rachel, earlier. Mm -hmm where a lot of fundraisers of color are leaving the sector and like, we cannot take this anymore. It, there has to be a different model of doing fundraising in a way that aligns with our values. And so we started meeting and then launched the movement at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's been really great to see the response to it. People are ready for this evolution of fundraising. So some examples of what this could look like is like an organization over here, they started having workshops with their major donors about race, mm -hmm. right? About where the family's wealth came from. One major donor attended a workshop and she discovered that her family's wealth was literally built on stolen indigenous land. And she made this vow that when she gets her inheritance, she's going to give 100% of it back to the native community because this is not her family's money. So this is an act of reparation and an act of justice. Like, mm -hmm. And that's fundraising. That's really cool. A bunch of nonprofits in the beginning of the pandemic also declined some funding 
they were getting funding from funders from a foundation who was giving out like these $50,000 grants. And some of them declined the funding. They said, you know, we're doing, we're doing okay. But some of our Black-led, Indigenous-led community organizations are not doing as well. Would you mind giving them this money instead? That's another sort of like example of what it looks like when we prioritize the well-being of the entire community and not just our own mission and its survival, mm-hmm. right? So there's like really cool things that are happening that are out there. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see where fundraising will be going because it mm-hmm. feels like we're ready to embrace it. I love that. And I think we talk a lot at IG about the idea of being resource activists. So thinking about the role of fundraising within the funding system as not Mm -hmm. fundraising for your organization, but thinking about it in the way that you would think about activism, about organizing resource, about getting it where it needs to go. And in my career history, I have experience of the funding for my entire sector running dry from both the government and the philanthropic world. And when it gets to severe points like that, it's not a question of more and better fundraising or how you defer to donors. It's a matter of existential. It's like a matter of survival for a whole sector and obviously for all of the communities you're serving. And so I think thinking about your role as an activist, as an organizer, as an influencer in collaboration and community with others is so vital. And I think the way that you've expressed that and made that accessible to people is really beautiful. And, and I'm glad that you're getting the positive response that you... Uh, Thank you. you. Thank you, Emily. I love that, that sort of framing of like fundraisers as activists, mm-hmm. right? I think that fundraisers need to embrace our roles as like agents of justice. Because mm-hmm. I think traditionally the way that we've been trained is that we are people who bring in resources so that other people can go and effect justice. Well, no, I think that we need to like really embrace our role because we have relationships with donors and folks that other people may not have. And we can actually use this to actually to move people along. And I think it's exciting. Yeah, I love that. Something that I find really inspiring about that. I mean, there's so much in in this community-centric fundraising approach, but it provides an alternative, which is really powerful because when you think, you know, to your point earlier, the system, well, we need to fundamentally break everything down, burn it all down and and rebuild, you know, going back to your the first quote I read um, from your tweet, just the, that idea. And when you tell a fundraiser or, or anyone that their current profession or the way that they work is fundamentally broken, flawed, in, unjust, crappy, I'm not trying to justify their reactions to the statements that you say because I'm completely on board. And I know that sometimes that's difficult to hear if you've invested your entire life and your profession in something that is actually not aligned with your values, that's actually causing harm. I can imagine that being honestly quite hard to reckon with. I think that's so interesting because that's probably also how funders are feeling. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) And so there's something to build alliances over there isn't it like yes yes and help we're all being told that we're doing things wrong and have been forever how might we move on from the desperate feelings we have in response to that absolutely and I don't mean I really am not saying this to justify or to give people a pass at their crappy behavior that's not at all it what I'm trying to say is is that when you're reckoning with something being broken and wrong and you can't yet imagine a new way that in between space of anxiety and shame is a space that's ripe for reaction and responses that aren't actually who you are and what you believe in. And it can cause so much toxicity and pain. And what I really see with this community-centric fundraising campaign and so much of your work is that it's providing specificity around imagining a new and better way of doing things. And that is so motivating for people. It's something they can get behind. It's practical. There's frameworks. They can read so many of your blogs, which beyond, I mean, they're, they're brilliant and they're also hilarious. They're accessible. There's so much humor in the work that you do, which I think is such a testament to the way that you love this sector as the reason why you're critiquing it in this way. I find that super powerful as well, because I know I can just imagine the conversations we've had with fundraisers, which is, yes, I understand it's broken, but now what? I've invested my whole life and my career in this, and you're just telling me I should throw it all away. And you're saying, no, don't throw it away, but join this new, better way. Do things differently. And there is a way forward. And that really means so much to me. It's really cool. Thank you, Rachel. This podcast is made possible by Seagull Family Foundation. We are building an extensive network of extraordinary people, positively transforming lives and communities across Africa. Whether you are a dreamer, funder, leader, or visionary, 
Our network can help you make the greatest impact. To learn more, visit www.seagullfamilyfoundation.org or contact us at info at seagullfamilyfoundation.org. I think that people are still pretty resistant, though. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're asking people to just like throw things away. There's lots of really good things Mm -hmm. about the sort of donor-centered approach that we've been trained, right? In many ways, it's in response to the fact that in the past, we ignored donors completely. And now the pendulum just kind of swung too much to the other way where we become very sycophantic. and, (laughs) And I think in some ways, we actually are infantilizing donors, right? Yeah. And that's also not very nice. It's like we try and protect them. We treat them like fragile baby birds who cannot handle conversations about race and (laughs) Mm -hmm. reparation and white supremacy. Like, why are you gatekeeping? I call it gatekeeper fragility when it's, you know, you project your fragility onto other people when the reality is that you are the one who's very fragile here. Mm -hmm. And so all these donor-centered people, ironically, are not the most donor-centered because they're actually not centering the growth of their donors or what would be most meaningful to their donors. They're centering what they believe their donors would want in a very paternalistic sort of way, right? So community-centric fundraising, even though people are like, oh, well, you hate donors. The reality is, no, we actually really like donors and we want to give them a meaningful experience. And what is more meaningful than actually having a, like an epiphany about where your wealth came from and now you actually returning it back to the indigenous land or the communities that you stole it from. Like I went back to this friend of mine who had that realization and I said, like, how do you feel right now? And she was like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how I feel, right? Because this is an injustice. I need to not censor my own white woman's feeling here. Mm-hmm. But if you're asking me as a friend, I can tell you, I feel relieved. Like there's a sense of that I don't have to carry this burden. And it's really nice to feel free and unburdened of something that my family did. Like, like, isn't that more meaningful and more joyful for everyone all around than just as if my friend was prevented from having this conversation and then, you know, she gets her inheritance, she donates 5000 or $10,000, someone writes her an amazing thank you note about what a hero she is, and then she was never able to go on to this journey about finding about this very meaningful journey. Like, which is better and which is more donor-centered? Yeah. Wow. It's a beautiful love language, what you're talking about. <laughs> it's that the it's the leaning in. It's just like you say, you're criticizing this sector because you love it. I mean, you believe in its potential and it's the exact same thing. I think it's a really fair point. Yeah. And I yeah. think it opens up so many more positive behaviors as options for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the pandering to donors point, we also pander to ideas of altruism and moral good and generosity rather than just the pragmatic reality of we need to redistribute resources to end inequity. We need to solve many of the social environmental issues that we are all subject to. We will not have a planet or a society if we don't. And so some of these more practical conversations you can start to have when you stop focusing on not just the fragility, but also that some of the kind of like fluffier white moderate (laughs) approaches to things that you're referring to, Mm -hmm. it really opens up some really very sophisticated and profound ways of working. Mm -hmm. And I love when you spoke about projection or that we're assuming we're infantilizing donors and oftentimes assuming this is how they want to be treated. But if we just showed up in a different way, how might that change their behavior? Mm -hmm. Which is also very cool and and within our control as fundraisers or Mm -hmm. it's something tangible. It's an action we can take away from this podcast and put into practice and experiment with, which I think is, is great. We want to dive more into this topic of race and privilege in the sector that you've already spoken about and, and you've described the sector as a community of white moderates, which is really powerful and absolutely true. And you talk about this a lot in your work. I wanted to just highlight a few blogs that we found particularly impactful that I think we're going to link them in the show notes and I, I, I think listeners should go away and read them. But I think that they really illustrate some of the frameworks that you use to speak about this topic and how you approach it. So there's one called White Development Colleagues, We Need to Talk About Fundraiser Fragility. There was one called The 12 Ways All Lives Matter Manifests in Nonprofit and Philanthropy and advice for white allies going through existential crises when doing DEI work. I love that one, especially. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's it's absolutely brilliant. And it 
calls people in and out in the right kind of balance. I think it's is really fantastic. And going back to what we were talking about earlier about tipping points, certainly 2020 was for many people a tipping point where the concept of anti-racism and structural racism was something that came into collective consciousness, certainly in the States, but the UK as well. It was There was an international reckoning with that, which is fantastic. And of course, just the beginning of where this needs to go. So I'm just curious from your perspective, it's been a couple of years since that moment. From your perspective, has there been any genuine progress beyond performative actions or reactions to that tipping point, beyond just conversations and reflections? Where do you see it's gone since then? And and where do you hope it will go in, in the short term? I think on an individual level, there are lots of people who have been doing some incredible work. There are individual organizations, individual foundations and donors who are doing incredible and necessary meaningful work. Mm-hmm. As a system, as a as a society, as a sector, I don't believe that's where we are. And in fact, I think that in many ways, regress. We've learned all the wrong lessons here. This is why, you know, it's like we should have learned the lesson that, that we were all sort of bragging, like we're all in this together. None of us are in this together. Like this is not how it has been, right? We have people who who are still doing very ableist things, like no longer having hybrid events or virtual events so that disabled colleagues can suddenly, they were like, oh, wow, with all the virtual events that are happening, well, I hope that they'll stick around after the pandemic. No, we revert right back. We have executive directors calling people to work back in the office again, even though we're probably going to hit another wave pretty soon. We didn't even learn that, wow, you know, people can be very effective working from home here. So I feel like we have been learning some of the wrong lessons we're like, we're scrambling to get back to the sort of like inequitable status quo that we've had. And it's really been very frustrating to see. And maybe it's because of the United States, what's been happening politically is another thing that's been affecting me. Where another thing we should have learned is like, who we elect matters. What sort of policy are being created? They matter. And we are still back into like, oh no, that's too political for us as a sector. We can't be political as nonprofits. We can't work on advocacy and policy and so on. You know, like we have hundreds of bills suppressing votes over here in the United States. And the our sector's response has been, meh, that's really not our mission. That would be mission creep if we start working on that. So I'm being kind of pessimistic and cynical right now, but I do not believe that we are learning the lessons that we are tipping towards like a more equitable society here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's something that I always think about. You you just described these political causes that people are not wanting to get involved in because of they don't feel it's their responsibility. And I always I always ask myself, is something political or is it politicized? And oftentimes it's the latter. So many yeah. of the things that we deem too political for nonprofits to get engaged with are actually just our collective projection of the fact that it's political and it's not, it's fundamental. Mm. And I know that there's also legislation that makes that more complicated for nonprofits or charities in the UK to get involved with. Yeah, It's complicated, but yeah, I think a really, really fascinating point. And, and we have to get there. We need to create more tipping points to make this sustainable in the future. We are regressing in some of those ways. We're still in denial. We are in denial about our own mortality. So mm-hmm. we don't realize that like, things are dying. Democracy mm-hmm. is on the verge of dying and fascism is on the rise. We are at this climate death that, you know, people have been freaking out for a long time about. And yet the people in power are just in denial that this is actually going to affect them and so on. And I think our sector is like that, mm-hmm. right? I, I kind of liken us to like the Avengers, right? Mm-hmm. And Thanos out there. We're like fighting Thanos, but we are not acknowledging that we're fighting Thanos. So like the Iron Man is like, you know, I'm, I'm only going to give up 5% of my uh, my endowments and well to fight Thanos because I'm saving for future mm-hmm. Thanos seeds, you know, because <laughs> there's going to be more Thanos in the future and I got to save up for the for the future for Thanos, right? Captain Marvel is like, we should spend two years forming a think tank and maybe writing a white paper about who will be most likely to be killed by Thanos. And then two years later, a white paper comes out and it's like, Oh, guess what, everyone? We did two years of research and we discovered it's going to be women of color and disabled people who will be likely going to be killed by Thanos. Everyone's like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I'm so glad that you did this research. You know, like that's that's so great. And then Mm -hmm. Dr. Strange is like, you know what? Why do we keep saying that we can't say we we are fighting Thanos? That is that's so political. Like, can we meet Thanos in the middle somehow? You know, like like, this is this is our sector right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> oh my god. I just feel like you could just carry on writing that screenplay. Like you could there's just so many yeah. other levels to you could just carry on with that. I can just see it yeah. happening and proliferating. Yeah, only Black the Panther is like, y'all, we can, yeah. like shit is fucked up. Like we need to like do something. <laughs> so and then Iron Man is like, okay, well, you know, why don't, I'm gonna release an RFP, the request for proposal, and maybe some of your soldiers can like apply oh for an iron for an armor. Oh my or god. Yeah. I just love these moments where we just really reckon with the absolute absurdity of everything that yes. we are privy to on a daily basis. And how we get in our own way. Yeah. Like we have created these systems and these expectations. And I've I've been in quite a few conversations recently with people who are talking about how that style differs from the style of the right or of fascist movements and how they resource their movements for social change. Because social change and social good is highly subjective, as we all know. And they do it in much more nimble, flexible, trust-based ways. And we can see the results of that. I was actually just listening to a podcast the other day talking about this. And they they were talking about how those movements really appeal to the emotions and the human-centered, user-centered mm-hmm. ways of creating change of people, of displacing their thoughts and replacing them with the thoughts that they want to have. And we're here talking about legislation and frameworks and RFPs and all these things that don't actually mean anything to us on a soul level. And look where we've got ourselves. It's <laughs> it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying and optimistic if we can get out of our own damn way. And you know, I don't know. I'm not need to think of the, the the metaphor with the movie and the Avengers, but there is there's a we are our own superheroes or something. I'm sure you can tie it up much more neatly than I can. <laughs> um, so speaking of terrifying existential crises yes. and how the world is burning, yeah. um, let's talk self care. So I would love to know your thoughts on self and collective care. We're also burnt out, and stuff is pretty tough right now. So what does self care look like for you these days? Oh boy, we might need a second podcast to talk about <laughs> self care. I, I feel like I feel like self care is something we we need to talk more about, and at the mm-hmm. same time, we can be very distracted by it. And I don't think the amount of green smoothies and yoga <laughs> or meditation apps is going to get us out of this burnout. It is capitalism. Mm-hmm. It is the fact that we are forced into this identity as productivity or productivity as identity sort of thing where. We have to work and like appear to be busy in order to have some sort of value to society, right? We have to be economic units in this sort of framework in order to have any sort of value here. And I don't think that we're going to be able to have effective self-care until we can actually get out of that sort of mindset and into the mindset of like, how do we support one another? How do we not define ourselves by simply what we contribute to the economy, right? Including for nonprofit as well. Because that has driven us into white moderation, right? Because we think that these incremental things that we are doing is somehow like really good. And so that's our form of self-care is contributing to incrementalism and pragmatism instead of actually thinking about how do we actually, you know, create new ways of being with one another, new ways of relating. So I don't know. I'm getting a little philosophical right now. <laughs> we love it. But like, Definitely. yeah, I don't think we're going to have self-care until we like, we, we solve poverty mm-hmm. until we try to really address the racism in society and we protect voting rights and things like that. And democracy is working again. Like, I don't think we're going to have those of us who really care about the world and other people. We're not going to find peace until things are working in society. Mm-hmm. Cool. OK, so I'm going to quit my smoothies and my yoga <laughs> and I'll just I'll just bring down capitalism. <laughs> Great. Okay. I'll catch up with you next week about that. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got our work cut out for us. But, but it's a fair enough point. It's a fair enough point because until that happens or there's a fundamental shift, then you could argue it's all just a band-aid or a coping mechanism I rather totally than agree. something deeper. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it can also be if we're intentional about it. Self-care can be like intentional rest so that we actually mm-hmm. have the energy to continue to fight. Yeah. And I think especially women of color and other marginalized communities who've been fighting for a long time I think the self-care should be us, the people with privilege, taking on the battle so that mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. of colors and others can take a break, mm-hmm. you know, and like yeah. not have to think about systemic injustice mm-hmm. for a while. So mm-hmm. I think we really need to kind of reframe how we, how we think about self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a quote that's related to the concept of resistance in place. 
and how you don't have to be active to be resisting. You can be resting to be resisting and that that Mm. is a form of rest is a form of resistance under capitalism. But as part of that writing, there was this concept of the quote was around participating, but not as asked. So participating in society, participating in the systems, because we have to, because we live here on planet Earth with all of our capitalist systems, but not as asked. So doing it in your own way and redefining your mindsets around it. But that as a form of resistance, kind of really just rest and restoration being part of how you rebel against the system that you're being asked to perform within. Yeah, it's it's the rest is resistance, joy is activism concept, which is so important and so beautiful. Vu, thank you so much for your time today, for your wisdom, for everything you do in this world and in this sector, and, and for giving some of your time and sharing it with us today. We have a few very, very serious questions for you before we sign off. <laughs> Not at all related to philanthropy or the nonprofit world or burning it all down. Um, but we have a bit of a, a quick speed round of a few things to ask you. Are you ready? Sure, I'm terrible at speed runs, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> That's okay. So we hear you're a vegan. So what is your favorite vegan food? Anything with wild mushrooms in it. Yeah, wild mushrooms and truffles. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Also chocolate. And nice. I found a chocolate bar that was made with chanterelle powder. I am not so sure they are designed to be combined together. Two of my favorite things. <laughs> well, to be discovered. But that sounds like a perfect <laughs> Venn diagram of your vegan interests. <laughs> what is the favorite show you've recently binged? Dairy Girls. I love Dairy Girls. It's so good. You know, my navigation app, I switch it to an Irish accent just so I can <laughs> feel like I'm in Ireland. You can pretend it's <laughs> Nicola Coughlin. <laughs> that is beautiful. Um, So we also have read that you are a Pisces. So what part of the Pisces description personality do you identify most with? Oh, Pisces were so creative and sensitive and compassionate and kind and caring and modest and humble. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Okay. Mandalorian or Star Trek Discovery? Oh, that is a hard one. I'm going to go with Discovery. You know, I love Mandalorian, but I like the hopeful, optimistic sort of tone of discovery. Love that. And final question. I know you have a big <laughs> you have a big Twitter thread of the Viet Kiet quotes. So we know that you're a dad and they are absolutely hilarious. So what is your favorite thing about being a dad? The snuggles. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes just come into in the morning, they'll just come up and they'll just snuggle with me in my bed. And one day I was like, hey, we need to get up. We got to get ready for school. And the little one who was like six was like, just one more snuggle. <laughs> I was How like, could you oh say no? <laughs> I know it's just so sweet. I think I have like maybe two more years of snuggling mm. before it's it's just over. So I'm, I'm I'm enjoying that very much. That's adorable. I love that. Okay, my final question is probably going to be the hardest question, which is, what is one key thing you want listeners to take away from this conversation? If you could just neatly <laughs> summarize every big concept we've spoken about, that would be great. I think my key thing right now is Thanos is winning. We do not have time (laughs) to doubt ourselves or to equivocate or to toxically intellectualize anymore. Mm -hmm. All right. This sort of like going high when they go low thing has not really been working. Like, don't be mean about things. But like, I feel like we really need to be out there to meet them, to meet the people who are creating injustice and to really stop playing nice anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, don't do anything illegal or violent, but like we should really be out there being a lot more angry and assertive right now mm-hmm. and not putting up with the bullshit that we have been trained to to do. Totally agree. Here, here. What a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Vu. This has been everything that we hoped it would be. Wow. It's such an honor to speak with you. And thank you for all the work that you do. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel and Emily. That's all we've got for today. A huge thank you to Vu. I have to say he has been a dream guest of mine for a while. So I'm really excited that we were able to kick off the season with this conversation. 
And I just love, I mean, there's so many things that I took away from that, but something that comes up time and time again with him is that he says he's engaging in this criticism and in these conversations and these challenging conversations because he loves the sector, because he loves the power of what we can do together. He doesn't want to infantilize it. He wants to fully lean into it, mm. which I just thought was so cool. And I know that criticism is a big word that we all have a lot of reactions to, but actually the act of setting boundaries and challenging something to make it better is a love language. It's a sign of commitment. And actually when you get into apathy, Mm-hmm. that's when there's a lot more danger. So I really respect his work and he does it with so much humor. I, I literally, I regularly lol. I laugh out <laughs> loud when I read his Twitter, when I read anything, his blog, his website, but particularly his Twitter all the time. And there's actually so few accounts that do that for me in the same way that his does. And yeah. through his humor and his wit, I regularly see things differently. Mm -hmm. I actively learn when I engage with his material and I walk away feeling so energized. And that's a huge gift. Yeah, I agree. And I think seeing things differently is so important for everybody that's in the funding system, right? Not just funders, not just fundraisers, leaders, volunteers, everything. We need to think about these things differently. And, And humor, I agree, makes it much more accessible and easy to swallow when we're all having existential crises. Mm-hmm. But I also think as fundraisers, as I said in the conversation, whether we think of ourselves as activists or not, we are organizers of giving. Like We mm-hmm. are the people who make a giving happen. We mm-hmm. act as bridges. We act as advocates for our causes, but also for our donors. We're having to advocate for our donors internally and kind of navigate the internal challenges of fundraising within our organizations. And we're often competing with our peers. We're competing for two small pools of funders, sometimes non-existent pools of funders. We struggle with too few people on our teams. And we face a lot of mistrust and misconceptions about what we do and how good we're doing it. And it's a really challenging profession and it needs to change and we need to do things differently. So I really, really appreciated everything that Vu had to say about that. But it's also so aligned with how we work at IG. And Mm -hmm. so I just wanted to make sure I ended with an invitation to anyone who's listening who wants to join IG in the work that we're doing to fix the flow of resources for good. We have a fellowship that's called the Fix the Flow Fellowship that's a cohort of ambitious fundraising talent, people who want to learn to thrive in the modern nonprofit world with all of its flaws and needs for change, and also be part of the movement for change within the funding system so that we can fix the flow. So if you're interested in finding out more about that fellowship, you can go to impactandgrowth.com forward slash fix the flow. And I just want to end by saying, you know, obviously we can all learn the art and the science of fundraising by listening to brilliant podcasts like this or kind of reading resources. We can all get better at the the craft of fundraising. That's part of the solution. But there are some really bigger challenges that, that can't be solved alone. And we really have to come together to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you, Emily. And for listeners, please stay tuned. There will be more episodes coming soon. This is very much the beginning of season four. And in the meantime, you know where to find us. So on Twitter, we are at IG underscore advisors. I can't say we're as funny as nonprofit AF, but (laughs) but we are on Twitter. Um, I don't think we'll make you lol in the same way, though. So we're on Twitter. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. We're also on LinkedIn. We do a lot of announcements there. And you can also just email us, any of us on the team directly for a chat. Our emails are on the website. I'm Rachel at ig-advisors.com. We are here to chat about all the things and the fellowship, especially that Emily mentioned, the Fix the Flow Fellowship. And finally, of course, a huge thank you to our official sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this possible and to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget, you can use the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, for a 50% off Alliance subscription. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. This podcast was produced by myself, Rachel stephenson Chef. Karen Atala and the team at Scrubcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us do what we do. Thanks so much. <laughs>